Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, y'all. It's Brittany. So I did it. I got the jab, the Fauci, the Vacky, depending on who you ask. I got my first shot of the Pfizer vaccine. The process, honestly, was pretty seamless. The only side effects I really had were some arm soreness and some fatigue. But I did not hesitate to get vaccinated. I genuinely do understand the complicated feelings that a lot of people have about this medical system. I've experienced medical racism in my own life, but I knew that when it was my turn, I wanted to do what I believe is best for me, a black woman with pre-existing conditions. I also did it to be a good neighbor. And that's why I'm gonna keep wearing my mask and social distancing because we're not gonna get through this without looking out for one another. My mom and my husband and my in-laws are also on their way to being fully vaccinated. I'm feeling excited to see a glimmer of light at the end of this very long tunnel. But if I'm being honest, there was another feeling that crept up that I was not expecting. I'm really anxious, y'all. I'm anxious about how an introvert like me is gonna deal with having less alone time when this is all over about life becoming an endless stream of plane rides again or feeling the pressure to say yes to every social or work invitation, even when my tank is completely on E. How will I, somebody who has a terrible time saying no, maintain a healthy work-life alignment when we return to normalcy? Honestly, I'm grateful that this is my problem considering that so many people are not here today to worry about these things. I wanna honor the life that I've been blessed to live because it is a blessing. And I wanna honor the lives of those we've lost. So that means I know it's not healthy to force myself to work 18 hour days and stress out while attempting to live my so-called best life. I'm trying to keep in mind what Trisha Hersey told us a few episodes ago, that rest is my divine right, and it is actually necessary to achieving our collective freedom. So here's to learning to build a dream life instead of a dream job. Running ragged didn't serve us well in the first place, so let's imagine a better way of truly living together. We are undistracted.
on the show today, Representative Cori Bush. I'll be talking to the St. Louis Congresswoman about bringing her full, authentic self to Washington, D.C., and what it was like for her to personally experience that Capitol insurrection. And not one point did I feel like I was about to die or my staff would, but what I felt like was if you touch these doors and if you come in this place trying to get at my staff, like we banging and we banging to the end. That's coming up, but first, it's your untrending news. First up, some absolutely horrific news coming out of Atlanta. You may have heard on Tuesday night, eight people were shot to death at three massage parlors in the city. Six of the people who were killed were Asian, two of them were white, and all but one of them were women. The group Stop AAPI Hate is calling the killings an unspeakable tragedy. And in just the past year, the organization documented nearly 3,800 incidents of anti-Asian hate. And of course, we know that that number is likely even higher. On Monday, just one day before this deadly attack, Georgia Senator Michelle Au stood in front of the legislature and warned her fellow senators. Georgia should not consider itself immune from this epidemic, racism towards Asian Americans. Recognize that we need help, we need protection, and we need people in power to stand up with us against hate. Y'all, enough is enough. How many times does Senator Al and others have to keep calling this out before action is taken? We are sending our love, our solidarity to the victims' families and the entire Asian American community. Now, some more uncomfortable news coming out of Georgia. Amid nationwide efforts to restrict voting, there are now several new anti-voter bills that are being proposed in John Lewis's home state. No surprise, they're coming after the historic turnout there by voters. Republican state legislators want to eliminate early in-person voting on Sundays and restrict drop boxes for mail-in ballots, among other measures, which, of course, would disproportionately hurt black voters. So now these badass civil rights groups and organizers are pressuring large Georgia corporations like Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and Home Depot to oppose these repressive bills. Organizations like Black Voters Matter, the New Georgia Project Action Fund, and the Georgia NAACP are urging CEOs to speak out against and stop donating money to GOP legislators who are sponsoring these bills. Here's what Insei Ufot, the CEO of New Georgia Project, has to say. We are trying to draw a very bright line in this moment. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of freedom and democracy? Or are you on the side of these Republican lawmakers who are trying to make it more difficult to vote? Y'all, I really can't stand it when people talk up a storm but only work up a breeze. We saw your BLM statements this summer, corporations. So now is the perfect time to show us you mean it. Put your platforms, your coins, and your considerable political clout to good use and fight voter suppression. Unless and until you actively join the fight for democracy and against racism, there will be no business as usual. And finally, in better news, This year's Oscar nominations were announced this week, and for once, they aren't so ridiculously white and male. 
For the first time, two, yes, two whole women are nominated in the Best Director category. Chloe Zhao for Nomadland and Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. Chloe, a Chinese filmmaker, is also the first woman of color to get that Best Director nod. In fact, 70 women received 76 nominations in total, the most ever in one year. And Viola Davis got her fourth nomination. She's now the most nominated black woman in Oscar history. She's up for Best Actress in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's pretty cool that nine of the 20 acting nominations went to people of color. And hopefully these history-making headlines are a signal of positive change. The Academy invited more women and more people of color into its ranks following April Rain's campaign Oscar So White a few years ago. But it still remains overwhelmingly white and male. And still, there are huge, huge structural issues. According to a new report from McKinsey, the film industry, get this, is one of the least diverse sectors in the entire country. More than 90% of film executives are white. This year's Oscars were also far from perfect. I'm not the only one that thinks Regina King got robbed for not getting that best director nod for One Night in Miami. And I am team Regina King till I die. So this is part of the reason why I have a healthy digest of black award shows too. And I always look forward to seeing how marginalized communities honor one another. We certainly don't have to wait on mainstream culture to honor our own. Coming up, I'll be talking to Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush about the real America, you know, the one that black folks know, right after this short break. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. And we're back. In November, my guest became the first black woman from Missouri to ever be elected to Congress. That's right, on her third run for elected office, Cori Bush finally made history. I'm here, ready to serve you, but I'm serving you as you go with me. So it's like I'm carrying you in my bag, taking you to committee. I'm carrying you in my bag, taking you to the floor. I'm carrying you in my bag, taking you to go vote because that's what this is for. Now before getting into politics, the former nurse rose to prominence while marching in the streets of Ferguson in the protest against the police killing of Michael Brown. And just because the Congresswoman now works in that illustrious Capitol building, that doesn't mean that she's left her activist roots behind. Cori Bush is keeping it all the way real. And I wanted to catch up with her. It had been a minute since we'd both been on the same ground in Ferguson. And as always, the representative brought her no-holds-barred self to the conversation. Congresswoman Cori Bush, my hometown Congresswoman, it is so fantastic to talk to you. You too. Oh my gosh. 
there's been a lot going on in your very first quarter. We recently had Congresswoman Ayanna Presley on, our good sis. And like I said to her, I truly cannot even imagine how frightening and traumatic it must have been for y'all being attacked in the Capitol. So before we start, I just want to ask how you're doing. Yeah, you know, I'm just pushing forward. I haven't really stopped to really think about it. But I'll say this, I feel like everything that we did starting back to Ferguson and before Ferguson prepared me for this moment because you were in mode. You know, you didn't know at what moment rubber bullets would fly, real bullets would fly, tear gas, pepper spray. You just didn't know. And so that's what it felt like, Brittany. I felt like I was in fight mode and I was just ready. And not one point um, did I feel like I was about to die or my staff would. But what I felt like was if you touch these doors and if you come in this place trying to get at my staff, like we banging and we banging to the end. And I didn't even mean my staff. I was talking about me because we did it on the streets. <laughs> Absolutely. And in the days following, we heard that very common but frustrating refrain that this is not America. This is not the America we know. And you answered that in no uncertain terms when you penned an op-ed in the Washington Post titled, This is the America that Black people know. What were you wanting the larger public, mainstream America, white folks to really understand? That that was a cop out. Mm. What America do you believe that we live in to act like racism doesn't happen in this country and to act like they didn't see all that happened during Ferguson and since Ferguson, every single time we protested all over this country, when some black person lost their life unjustly at the hands of police every single time. If we go back to slavery, but even after slavery, Jim Crow was at our imagination. Right. You know, was the civil rights movement, was everything that happened with that our imaginations, were lynchings our imagination. And so to act like this is not America, that you can't have a bunch of angry white people showing up to a place that came ready to hurt humans. And now all of a sudden, this isn't America? Look, it was time to call it out. Well, I'm so glad that you did because you called it out better than it's been called out before. <laughs> and folks needed to understand that. The other thing you did in the aftermath of this capital insurrection of this riot was to create a bill to expel those members who helped incite this riot. Yes. Why is this so important? You know, it was important because we have to hold our colleagues accountable. And in this instance, we're talking about our Republican colleagues. You know, they attempted to overturn the 2020 election and incite this insurrection against the U.S. government. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is clear that no person who works in rebellion against the United States government can hold office, the office of the representative, senator, or president. And so, look, I'm leading more than 50 of my colleagues in this resolution, and we're going to continue to work until we can get this done. Amen. And you are affected by this personally. You had to move your office away from one of your colleagues due to safety concerns for you and your team. That person being, of course, Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know that her staff has berated you, that she refuses to wear masks. And since then, she has now been bullying another colleague across the hall um, and hung an anti-transgender sign outside of her office, knowing that her colleague has a trans child. Right. It's sad that, you know, she has decided that she wants to be uh, this person seen as someone speaking 
on behalf of Donald Trump and all of his cronies instead of serving the people and all the people, because that's what we signed up for. This job is being taken by some of my Republican colleagues like they're entitled to it, you know, versus it being an honor to serve the people. And the thing is, we moved our office because St. Louis deserves better. St. Louis deserves for us to be able to focus on St. Louis and what St. Louis needs. We've waited too long and it took too much for me to get here in this position to then be all distracted by trying to make sure that my staff is okay, that they can function, that they are at peace while they're at work and that, you know, we don't have to worry about someone walking past our office with guns, you know, and unmasked and all of that. We didn't, we didn't need that. So we moved our office so that we can work for the people. And so we got to call it out. So let's actually get into that work, because like you said, that is what you were there to do. And you've hit the ground running. You've been making your voice heard from day one. We are grateful for it. On top of advocating for more coronavirus relief, what are some of your most urgent priorities right now? I know you're working on environmental justice. You're working on issues of racial justice. What's at the top of your list? A couple of things that we've been able to do already Um, We sent a letter to the DOJ, the Department of Justice, regarding the disparate treatment of Black protesters. And, you know, we talk about white supremacist insurrection. And that is personal to me, just to find out, like, hey, who's paying attention to this and have you done anything about it, you know, before now? So um, that's something that we did. We're urging President Biden. He says he opposes the death penalty. So we're asking him to move beyond that and into action and to uh, commute the sentences of the 49 people that are on federal death row right now. Because we do know, Brittany, that we're talking about mostly black and brown people. And research shows that one in 25 are actually innocent. Just completely reforming our criminal legal system. More investments in alternatives to policing, because you know I'm all about defunding the police. That's something that has to happen. And then also environmental injustice. One thing that I want to do, Brittany, is also help people who look like us to see that when we talk about our environment, that it is something that we need to be paying attention to because the environment that we live in should not be a toxic and lethal one, which is what we live through in St. Louis. So looking at all of that is important. You know, what's going on with our air? Why are Black children 10 times as likely to go to the hospital for asthma than white children? Like all of those things, that's something that we have to have our eyes on as well because our health and safety have to be priority. I am paying attention to all of that and especially looking forward to the DOJ's response to your letter about how it treats Black protesters because that is essential work. All of what you're doing is essential work. You also sit on the House Judiciary Committee, and in a recent hearing, you talked about your support for reparations for Black Americans. How do you explain the need for reparations to people who are just coming around to this concept? You know, I explain it by saying Black Americans would not be the first ones in this country to receive reparations. And so that is something that is due. It's not unheard of. And so I know that I've heard people say, well, even my Republican colleagues, well, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So why do I have to pay for it? Well, you know what? Our ancestors did not ask to be brought to this country. They did not ask to be chained and put into slave ships. And for those that survived the Middle Passage, who were stripped on auction blocks from their family members and put into a place where they lost their culture, lost their families, lost their names, lost their, their language, they didn't ask either. You know, but somebody had to pay for that. And that payment comes now. 
and I know people may not like it, but some of that payment needs to come in the form of cash. And then some of that payment, we also should look at putting it in education. When I think about Illinois, it's a part of Chicago where they've already decided like, hey, we're going to use taxes from marijuana, you know, and we're going to use that for reparations. Like, be creative. Let's get this thing done. We have to make amends. You have to pay for what you messed up. And it's not going away. Yeah. You know, we want to be America the beautiful. <laughs> if you want to be America the beautiful, then do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's as simple as that. So, you know, we're talking about the ancestors and in so many ways you are a realization of what so many of them have fought for as you continue on in their stead. So I actually want to talk a little bit about your background. You hit the streets during the Ferguson uprising uh, alongside, you know, thousands of our other friends and colleagues and comrades. But you were also a registered nurse and a pastor at the time. You've been very clear about your background, that you're a single mom, that you've come from a working class background, and that you're a survivor of domestic violence. What made you want to bring all of that life experience and that activism background to the halls of Congress? So I never thought that I would ever run for office. I would say when I was younger that I wouldn't. I use the word never. I would tell my dad that all the time because he's been in politics for most of my life. But it wasn't until just being out there on the streets of Ferguson day in and day out for hours upon hours watching our friends and our, you know, our now family members, watching them brutalized and hurt and just talking with Mike Brown Jr.'s family and just looking at this, the grief and how he was villainized. And, and then watching our elected officials who were actually paid to represent us in most cases, just wondering, like, where are they? Because I felt like, man, if they would show up and then tell the police to stop, you know, or show up and call the governor, like things would change, but that never did happen. But we saw a lot of photo ops, you know, and, mm. and a lot of articles about, you know, photo ops. And it was just strange to see that and to not see the work, but see the regular everyday people putting our lives on the line and our livelihoods. People lost jobs, people lost family members, you know, people were physically hurt, physically assaulted. Some lost their lives. And so I was asked to run for office Brittany by an activist who has since been murdered. And, you know, in the beginning I said no, but then after being asked again by some local community leaders, I said yes, because I thought about how do we get the heart of the people that have been out here on these streets that continue to come out after assault, after arrest and all of that, all of the surveillance we've been under, how do we get that heart? The only way to do it is to run. And if something happens to my children, mm. if my son or my daughter becomes the next hashtag, and I could have done something to stop it and I didn't do what I knew that I could, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So I ran. And you ran and you ran and you ran again until victory was yours. What made you decide to just dust yourself off and try again? Because <laughs> I think a lot of people, a lot of people would have given up. Yeah, it was the mission because I didn't run for my name or for myself. I ran for the people and for real change. And so the first time when I didn't win, like three weeks later, I suffered a very violent sexual assault um, and didn't think that I would ever run for office. I didn't look, I didn't think I could do anything after that. But this, the mission thinking about and what I went through in that situation, trying to get justice, I was like, look, the only way to get for us to get what we need is for somebody to run. So I didn't complete the mission the first time. And does that mean the mission goes away? You know, no, the mission didn't go away. So I ran again. And because I didn't win, that time, but I saw how people were inspired and people, you know, there was so much hope. I just felt like, look, let's just try it again. Because again, the mission is there. And if I stop 
what do the people get? When I had COVID, the people were like, oh, you need to get out of the race because you have COVID, you're too sick, blah, blah, blah. No, because when COVID is over with and COVID is temporary, what happens to the people after that? You know, so the people deserve better. So we ran. I so appreciate your heart. And I don't think there's a single person on the planet who cannot tell not just how committed you are to the mission, but what your mission is. And you're certainly a part of a class of politicians who are keeping in a buck in Washington and making sure that the people are always first. Now, we know that that doesn't come without criticism, though. Yeah. So it's not just the Republicans that we've talked about. We also know that there are members of your own party. Mm-hmm. There are Democrats who have accused you of being too radical for alienating people by saying things like defund the Pentagon or defund the police. How do you respond? <laughs> you know, for me, I just keep the message the message because that's how I got here. Even though some of it made people feel uncomfortable and they may not have understood why I said what I said or believe what I believe, but after they heard it enough and they and I was able to really share my story, whether they agreed or not, there was a breaking. And so I feel the same way about my Democratic colleagues. You know, I'm the representative that was chosen to serve this particular district. And you serve your district. You do what your district needs. But when we talk about defunding the police, you may not understand it the way that I understand it. But St. Louis is yet again number one for police killings in the country year after year after year after year. But again, why is St. Louis still number one? And you want me to close my mouth about dealing with police violence and and defunding the police? No, I'm not going to do that. And the thing is, I'm coming from a place of lived experience Mm. that I'm willing to talk about versus articles and pictures and videos and what somebody told me. But if someone wants to talk to me, Brittany, we're going to talk and have those conversations. And sometimes people have gotten upset. Oh, well, you talk to this person. This is not somebody. We don't like this person. You sold out because you talked to this person. Well, let me help you to know something. My job is to talk to people. How else will you change people if you won't talk to them? Like, I'm not afraid to talk to them. And if you think that me talking to a police chief or talking to one of our one of my colleagues is me selling out, then that's why we're in the position we are now. No, I'm going to talk to him because on the bullhorn, I was talking to him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's true. Now I got some power. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So if you got some power, you, they definitely need to hear you. So you obviously have your critics, but you also have your fans. Uh, people like the Saturday Night Live comedian Leslie Jones. She loves you big time. She's been... <laughs> posting videos of watching you on TV with her commentary. Yeah. I actually want to take a quick listen. Oh my God, who is this woman? And why is she not the speaker of the floor? <laughs> Seriously, I love her. She is the keep it real queen. This is what keep it real would look like if it was a person. Sister, I don't care what we got to do. Me and you are going to be friends. I've never been more serious in my life. I think that we are already friends. So hit me up. So I have to ask you, are y'all homegirls yet? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's my homie. Look, we text. We text each other. Yes. I love that. That's how we need to support each other. And lastly, the role that you're playing as an unapologetic agitator and power builder, I'm really hoping that it will affect Congress in positive ways. So as you look to the future, what do you think will be possible for Congress in 5, 10, even 20 years from now with this kind of forward-looking agitation? 
Absolutely. I think that people will start to think about who they are and bring that even more to the forefront. In Congress, I remember when I called former President Donald Trump, the white supremacist in chief, and I had so many people reach out to me and they were like, you said what I've been thinking for all of this time, but I just didn't know how to, like, or I didn't want, I wasn't sure if I could, like all of that. Also looking forward to those who are saying, look, If Corey can do it, I can do it. I have the heart to just be for the people and not a heart for fame and all of that. So I'm going to run too. I'm going to run in my district. You know, so that's what I'm looking forward to is more of us, more Ayanna Presley's, more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, more Rashida Tlaib, more Ilhan Omar's, more Jamal Bowman's. I'm looking for more of us to come in and do this work because... It's so much work to do. People criticize us for like, well, why didn't you do this? You did this. Why do you do, do that? We've been here six and a half, seven weeks. You know, we can only <laughs> do so much. But if you pay attention to who you're voting for or not voting for, that would help us too. It's not just about Congress, your state legislature. Because if your state legislature could get right, Congress would be different too. You know, all of that plays a part. So that's what I'm looking for. People paying attention either moving into this role or paying attention to what's happening locally and helping to push legislation on local levels. Well, as your constituent, I am so grateful that you ran and ran and (laughs) ran again. And I'm grateful for the way that you're representing us. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Yo, you too, sis. (laughs) Cori Bush is the U.S. representative for Missouri's first congressional district, my Congresswoman. I'm from the Lou, and I'm proud. Remember a few weeks ago when Ayanna Presley reminded us that the squad is big and growing? Well, Cori Bush is absolutely a part of that growth. And her excitement to see more people enter the arena of elected office is something I deeply share. We need as many Corys and Ayanas and Rashidas and Jamals as we can possibly have, and we need them everywhere. I often say that we build teams, not saviors. This isn't just about getting the work done, it's about making sure that none of it ever falls to just a few people. Delegation is self-care too, and when more people share the load, we can go further, faster, and get a lot more done. So pay close attention to the 2022 races, y'all, and consider volunteering or even running for office yourself. Like the Congresswoman said, there is still a lot of work to do and your part in it matters. The oppressive powers that be would rather you think of your contribution as too small to make a difference. I'm here to tell you, we need you. That's it for today, but never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. A very special happy birthday to our associate producer, Taylor Hoskins. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us, please, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. Thanks for doing. 
And to all of our loved ones in the Asian American Pacific Islander community, we see you, we stand with you, and our anger will turn into action. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.